All right, Second Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In Second uh, Thessalonians chapter number 12, we have Paul's word of admonition to the Thessalonian believers. And uh, we could give it a description, this portion of Scripture that we've read, as being the greatness of the coming lie. Uh, in this passage of Scripture, we sweep into prophetic themes and ideas uh, that undoubtedly uh, illuminate and, and stimulate our mind, our imagination. Uh, but we don't merely want to have uh, the information of our imagination. We want to have the truth of God's Word about the things <coughs> excuse me, that are presented to us. So basically there are two portions to our text tonight. Verses 1 and 2 deal with a local deception. In other words, a problem that was there at the church at Thessalonica that had uh, created turmoil for the believer. But then Paul uses that as a springboard to deal with a topic that is uh, fascinating, I think, to many of us, and that is the larger deception that will characterize the world and will enthrall the world during the tribulation period, during the end times. And so, moving uh, through this scripture, I want us to notice first off this local deception that Paul speaks about. First, we see the plea of the apostle in verse number one. He says, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. In the brief period between the writing of Paul's two Thessalonian epistles, some teachers had arisen in the church at Thessalonica who were advocating a false doctrine. Their teaching was that the day of the Lord had come and that the church was already in the great tribulation. Doubtless the persecution that the Christians were suffering had something to do with that fact. If so, these false teachers failed to distinguish between tribulation, which the Lord foretold would be the common and universal lot of believers in this world ruled over by the enemy, and the great tribulation, a special period when the Jews and believing Gentiles in particular will be persecuted by the Antichrist. By the way, let me pause there and say that that error is still very present in many churches today. Here we are in East Tennessee. been more than once that I've been uh, castigated and, and criticized as being a white horse preacher. And one of the things that they will always say uh, about a premillennialist or a uh, pre-tribulationist uh, is they will say, well, John said that we're in tribulation already. 
Uh, that's very true. We are in tribulation, always have been in tribulation. But there's a difference between using it as a characteristic of the condition of the church and of society, something they're suffering and enduring, and using it as a theological term. Uh, for instance, uh, we're living in a time for us that is a time of Gentiles. But it could always have been said that there were Gentiles in the world, and for all of them, they, we've always had a time of Gentiles. But the Bible uses a phrase, the times of the Gentiles, that stretches all the way from when Nebuchadnezzar uh, sacked Jerusalem in uh, 598 B.C. and, and took hold of, of the temple, all the way from that time until the Lord comes back in glory. So there's always been a time of Gentiles, but that's not the times of Gentiles. In the same way, there's always been tribulation, but it's not the same thing as what the Bible describes as the great tribulation. That is a very distinct time period that the Word of God teaches about. It, it, it's not elastic. It has a period of time that's denoted of seven years and three and a half years of that particularly being characterized by turmoil. So these terms are not abstract to us. The Bible teaches us what these things mean. But that error, that distinction or lack of distinction uh, has been a problem even since the early New Testament church. So it shouldn't surprise us that it is still present today in many churches. Paul's first epistle had set before the Thessalonians a pre-tribulation rapture. Now other teachers were telling them that the tribulation had already come. Paul went to work right away to set the record straight. The word coming here is the familiar word we've seen all throughout these two epistles, the word parousia, about which Paul has already written to the Thessalonians. As we have seen, it refers to the period between the rapture and the final return of Christ. It refers to the time when the church will be with the Lord in the air, appearing at the judgment seat of Christ and participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The root meaning of the word is to be near, refers to the Lord's physical presence. The word is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament, but its basic meaning is simply presence. Uh, when it's presented to us as the word coming, it denotes the actual presence of the person who comes. It occurs 24 times in the New Testament. Twice it is rendered presence, and the rest of the times it is rendered as coming. Six times it is used of individuals, Stephanus and Titus and Paul, and always refers to their personal presence. It's used half a dozen times of Christ's presence in the air when he comes to meet his raptured bride before the Great Tribulation. It's used 11 times in reference to Christ's presence on the earth, when he comes to the earth with the church in the day of the Lord, immediately after or at the culmination of the Great Tribulation. Once it is used of the personal presence of the Antichrist, who is to be destroyed by Christ's own presence. The passage of Scripture now before us is of particular interest, because Perusia is used in it in three different contexts. Verse 1, it's used for the presence of Christ in the air. Verse number 9, it's used for the presence of the Antichrist. In verse number 8, it's used for the presence of Christ on earth. The expression, by our gathering together unto him that we find, occurs just twice in the New Testament, here and in Hebrews 10.25, where we are told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves or of yourselves together. And so much the more as we see the day of the Lord's return approaching. One major reason for our gathering together down here with those who love the Lord and are of like precious faith is that it is a foretaste of our gathering in the air. We are gathered together unto him now in Matthew 18:20. Uh, we shall be gathered together with him then in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul beseeches his Thessalonian brothers not to be so easily swayed by wrong teaching. The word beseech here is the word erotiae, and uh, it's used to denote our asking or requesting a person to do something. 
So Paul pleads with the Thessalonians. Uh, he beseeches them that they be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. The word soon here uh, has the idea of quickly. The subversion of the Thessalonians had been done swiftly. Satan does not let any grass grow under his feet. No sooner is he checked by Paul's, Paul's first epistle, in which the whole rapture question is spelled out, than he counters with another error. The word shaken is the word saluo, and it means to shake, to move to and fro, and to agitate. Uh, this word was used to describe a ship's shifting from its moorings in a storm. A parallel use of the word is found in uh, Peter's Pentecostal sermon, when he said, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Same word is used there. You know, that is always what Satan tries to do, to move us away from sound doctrine and get us to drag our anchor. Everything else follows from that. You know, Paul said this, that evil communication corrupts good manners. In other words, evil teaching, wrong teaching, erroneous teaching will affect our lives. When we have no grounding in the Word of God concerning what we believe, uh, then it won't be long before our, our standards, our convictions begin to slip. Because, listen, living in the wicked world we're living in, you've got to know why you believe what you believe to stand for what you believe. The devil is not going to make it easy. The word troubled here is the word promei. It means to cry aloud or to wail. Here the thought seems to be that of being frightened so as to make a clamor. And no wonder, if Paul was right that the rapture preceded the tribulation, and if they were already in the great tribulation, then they had missed the rapture. And that was something about which to wail. If the false teachers were right, and the rapture followed the great tribulation, and if that dreaded event had already begun, then doom and gloom, terrors and horrors unimaginable lay ahead. And that too was something about which to wail. Neither of you offered any comfort. You remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, he tells them when he teaches about the rapture, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Any, any belief about end time events that does not give us cause for comfort regarding our faith in Christ and our lot as a Christian has gone uh, astray somewhere. Uh, it, it's never meant to fear monger, uh, to scare us. And, and I don't believe necessarily that things are uh, just going to be smooth sailing up until the rapture. I know there's a lot of turmoil in the world, and I'm not saying there are not things that uh, rightfully concern the believer, but I'm saying the Word of God never teaches us to fear, but always to have faith. Uh, never teaches us to live in terror, but always in confidence. So Paul pleads with his friends not to be so swiftly moved from the truth. Then we see the plot of the adversary. How did he effectuate this? Well, what was the thing that caused the Thessalonian believers to be so disturbed? He mentions three things here, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us that the day of Christ is at hand. Paul pinpoints the source of their deception. The Thessalonians had been ensnared in a threefold cord of deception. They were the victims of wrong information, and wrong information is always dangerous. For a traveler to be told to turn left when he should turn right, or for a doctor to prescribe medicine when he should prescribe surgery, or for a financial advisor to suggest buying when he should suggest selling, is the giving of wrong information. And in each case, it could be disastrous. For a preacher to teach one thing when he should be teaching the opposite is equally dangerous, more so in some instances because it imperils immortal souls. So why was this deception convincing to them? Well, because of this threefold way uh, that it was prevented, uh, presented to them. Uh, we could maybe describe it in this way. They were presented with first, a false spirit, second, a fabricated prophecy, and third, a forged letter. The first strand in the error at Thessalonica derived from a lying spirit of utterance. 
Someone had claimed to receive a message from God and was spreading their deception throughout the Thessalonian church. You know, John warned, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. John said that in his day the spirit of Antichrist was already at work in the world. The test for a false spirit that he gave then is still valid today. God has told us that we need to know his written word. A lying spirit then had deceived the Thessalonians, had began to turn people's ears. Then there was a fabricated prophecy, or we could probably use the term sermon. He says, nor by word. They had also been deceived by erroneous preaching, by what Paul here calls a word. The word is logos uh, that's used here, which refers to some kind of teaching that claimed to be revealed truth, but there was nothing of the kind. Here the teaching concerned the second coming of Christ. It was false teaching, though. The Thessalonians should have been more cautious, like the Bereans, about accepting teaching at its face value, no matter how respected the teacher. And, of course, we live in a day uh, when religion is inundated with all sorts of people claiming uh, that they have some fresh new revelation. Uh, I just want to remind you that, uh, you know, the, the, the Lord, he, he closed the canon of Scripture at the close of Revelation. He said there was a curse upon any man that added to, any man that took away. Anybody that comes along telling you that they have a fresh truth or a fresh revelation from God. And I don't just mean, hey, God laid something on my heart, showed me something through His Word, but something outside of His Word or something that, that adds to what the Word of God plainly teaches, you mark her down, they're trying to sell you something. So we see a fabricated prophecy here. And then evidently there was a forged letter. He says, a letter uh, as from us had deceived the Thessalonians. The apostle had indeed written them a letter in which he had declared plainly that the church would be saved from the wrath of the great tribulation. Now they had seemingly received another letter. The words, as from us, can be understood as as if or purporting to be from us. In other words, somebody wrote and signed it with Paul's name. We have examples of this kind of thing even in our own day. The Mormons, for instance, are deceived by a false book that is widely distributed, cleverly advertised, and utterly a lie. Having thus disassociated himself from the forged letter and repudiated the other lying communications, Paul turned the whole wretched affair to good account. He used the local deception at Thessalonica as a springboard from which to launch a disclosure of a coming universal deception. Satan's most secret plans are hauled out into the open and exposed for everyone to see. His lie concerning the day of the Lord becomes the basis for the unmasking of his most carefully guarded strategy for the end times. Notice then what the deception contended. So we've seen why it convinced. What did it contend? He says, as that the day of Christ is at hand. The Thessalonians were being told that the day of Christ is at hand, that it was present or already had arrived. Paul detailed clearly that no member of the body of Christ would be left behind in the rapture to endure the wrath of the great tribulation. You remember that's what 1 Thessalonians is about, that we which are alive and remain will not prevent them which are asleep. That they were concerned because they didn't know what had happened about those that had died in the Lord, and they didn't know how to unravel this thread. And so Paul spends some time detailing that the rapture, when it happens, will gather all of the church, all of the bride of Christ together. The devil now simply shifted his strategy. Instead of claiming that some believers would be left behind, he moved the timing of the rapture to the close of the Great Tribulation. The Thessalonians had once again been led to believe that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord was already upon them and that all the horrors of God's wrath lay before them. So really what Paul is dismantling here is a post-tribulation rapture. And he gives us good reason uh, why the rapture is presented in Scripture as being pre-tribulation. 
Now, the second major part of this passage is the larger deception. What is going to come upon all of society during the tribulation period and how that informs our attitude and understanding of the Word of God. Uh, it is basically divided into portions. First, in verses 3 through 6, he deals with the man of sin, the Antichrist. Then in verses uh, 7 through 12, he deals with the mystery of sin. Uh, in other words, uh, Satan's plan, Satan's uh, you know structure for how he seeks to perpetuate this. So dealing with the man of sin, he talks first off about the coming apostasy. He says, let no man deceive you, verse 3, by any means. For that day, now what is that day that he's talking about? The day when Christ will be revealed. That day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. There are seven words for deceive in the New Testament. This one is the word exapateo, and it means to deceive wholly or to delude thoroughly. The Thessalonians, in other words, were in danger of swallowing Satan's lie, hook, line, and sinker. Paul uses the word to describe the activity of the flesh in his life in Romans 7.11 when he says, Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. He used the same word to describe the deception of Eve in 2 Corinthians 11.3 when he said, The serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Here Paul warns, Let no man deceive you by any means. This is interesting. The word here contains a double negative. The same kind of thing occurs in Matthew 24, 21, and 22, where the tribulation is described. It says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. In Greek, two negatives do not make a positive as they do in English. In other words, they, they don't cancel each other out. They compound instead. Uh, so it was almost like he was saying, no, no, or not, nor. Paul writes. What that means is that we had better believe it. The Lord described it in such a way as to emphasize that there had never been anything like it and never will be afterwards. Similarly, the use of the negative here is for emphasis, uh, that we are to not let any man deceive us by any means. We are to doubly guard our doctrine and our beliefs. Before unveiling the unveiling of Christ to the world, there is to be a falling away. The word here is the word apostasia, where we get our word apostasy from. Uh, the Jerusalem church leaders used the word in persuading Paul to participate in the temple ceremony. They said to him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law, and they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake. Same word, apostasia, to forsake Moses in Acts 21. Paul, in other words, was accused of ca causing Jews to apostatize from Moses and the law to fall away or to turn their back on. It's the only other time the word is used. The verse foretells, in other words, a global and final rebellion against God. If we take this to be the meaning, then Paul indicates that the last days will be marked by falling away from the truth, a turning away from God, abandonment of the Christian faith and the Judeo-Christian ethic. With the rise of, a rise of atheism, communism, and humanism, and the spread of false oriental religions, this seems to be a marked feature of the current age. The media are the tool and ally of all those subversive forces in our society, favoring unbridled permissiveness. Pornography and perversion are championed. Bible reading and prayer have been banned from our schools, but every form of moral deviation can be espoused there. The soul-destroying dogma of evolution is accepted as a matter of course, and the Christian view of creation is refused to hearing. Many churches have become liberal, cold, and spiritually dead. Satanism is on the rise. 
The courts endorse abortion and lifestyles abhorrent to New Testament Christianity. The stage is being set for the coming of the man of sin. So in other words, there is not going to be a great revival. Now, it doesn't mean there cannot be local revival. I don't even think it means there cannot be national revival. But what it means is that there's not going to be a condition of things getting better, but rather of things getting worse. Then he speaks of a coming apocalypse. Now, remember, that word apocalypse means an unveiling, a disclosure. He says in uh, verse number two or verse number three, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now, what do we learn about this coming apocalypse? Well, first off, we learn that it is sovereignly determined. The coming of the Antichrist is not something that will surprise God, but rather it is something that is, uh, I, I'm going to use the word foreordained by God. Not meaning that God endorses or enjoys it, but it is part of God's plan that this would take place. So this man of sin that's uh, disclosed to us, this son of perdition, we use the term, and it's a biblical term, Antichrist, is introduced to us here in verse number 3. Uh, the first thing that we notice about him is the names of the deceiver that are mentioned. He's called the man of sin and the son of perdition. Paul says that the apostasy will climax in the revelation of a person called the man of sin or the son of perdition. The word for revealed is the word apocalypto, and it means to uncover or unveil. It reminds us of the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us, too, of the closing book of the Bible, Revelation, which details the facts, circumstances, and judgments related to the second coming of Christ and gives further details of the coming of the Antichrist, the devil's Messiah. The use of the word apocalypto underlines the fact that the Antichrist is to have his unveiling in imitation of Christ. Satan always tries to mimic God in his, in his work and in his ways. The Antichrist will be known as the man of sin. The word for sin here is the word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. It's a very common word for sin in the New Testament. And the idea is that this terrible human being will be the incarnation of all wickedness. Sin will be his meat and drink, the very breath of life to him. He will encourage sin. He will make full use of it. Pornography, perversion, sex, drugs, murders, lies, deceptions, gambling, and graft will all be grist for his mill. His personal charisma and charm will doubtless be very great. No wickedness is so insidious as that which is clothed by a magnetic, attractive, and forceful personality. And he will undoubtedly be a man of vast intellect with an easy command of languages, the arts, and the scientific disciplines. He will be a wily politician. He will be thoroughly bad, evil through and through, Satan spawned, demon inspired, the seed of the serpent, a man of sin. The world today is moving rapidly to meet him. Permissiveness is the prevailing spirit of the age. Uh, the generation of the Antichrist is coming into focus and will soon be ready to uh, rule the earth. Moreover, there is no hint of a Holy Spirit revival. The so-called charismatic renewal that we hear about has its roots in utter deception. Rather, the Holy Spirit warns us to look for total and complete apostasy before the rapture. Satan's coming man is not only entitled the man of sin, but he is also called the son of perdition. The word apolia is the word uh, perdition. It means destruction or ruin. The word is used of all those who reject Christ in 2 Peter 3, 7. It's used also of those who are deceived by the love of money in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. It's used in one of those terrible warning passages in Hebrews to describe the difference between a believer and an apostate when it says we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul in Hebrews 10.39. The word depicts the terrible loss that all the unsaved will suffer. 
It suggests that all that they had and might have had is now gone forever. It refers to the destruction of body, soul, and spirit, to an utter and complete ruin that will not be reversed. This is the word now used to describe the Antichrist. He will be the son of perdition. The expression itself embodies a Hebrew idiom, as for instance in Luke 10.6, we hear the phrase son of peace. Or in Mark 3.17, the uh, sons of uh, Boadrinus, uh, James and John, were called the sons of thunder. Uh, or Barnabas in Acts 4.36 is called the son of consolation. It's used to depict character, and it unveils to us that his very character, his very nature, will be that of destruction. I want to read this to you, and I'll admit to you, I don't know if I subscribe to this, but it was interesting enough to me that I thought I wanted to share it. And I think there could be some truth here, but, you know, I don't really endorse anything I say. I know me too well, but uh, but I, I, I found this, I wanted to share it with you, I thought it was interesting. The description is applied to only one other individual in the Bible, and that's Judas Iscariot. Jesus called him the son of perdition. Kenneth Luce took this to be a positive identification linking the man of sin with Judas. He declared that by all the laws of grammar, the use of the definite article here points to one son of perdition, whereas the indefinite article would leave room for two or more. He adds that the Greek text has the definite article in both John 17.12 and in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan went further. He believed that Judas was not an ordinary human being at all, but an incarnate fiend. He based that position on the Lord's statement, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve, in John chapter 6. Thus, when we are told that Judas went, quote, to his own place in Acts 1.25, the inference is that he went to a different place in the underworld than that to which other departed human beings go. Luce maintained that Judas did not go to hell, but to the abyss, the bottomless pit, where certain dangerous spirits are being incarcerated. Some scholars think that Judas is being tutored and prepared there for his reappearance as the Antichrist. That the Antichrist in his final form is to be a resurrected man is clear from the book of Revelation. He is described as the wild beast that was, that is, he lived on the earth once before, that is not, that is, that he died, and that will ascend out of the bottomless pit where his soul was in prison and will go into perdition, Revelation 17.8. In the apocalypse, the Antichrist has two comings. The devil always mimics God. Whenever he first appears, he will be an ordinary man, brilliant, persuasive, attractive, powerful, and possessed by Satan as Judas was in John 13.27. He will be killed. He's called the first beast whose deadly wound was healed in Revelation chapter 13, and he'll be brought back to life again. Thus, Satan imitates both the resurrection of Christ and his second coming. The Antichrist will come back as one of the seven kings referred to in Revelation 17. Whether at this time the soul of Judas enters into the corpse of the Antichrist, we're not told. Certainly, the effect of this resurrection will be startling. Before, he was simply the beast out of the sea in Revelation 13.1, presumably a reference to his human origin in a Gentile nation bordering the Mediterranean. Now, he is the beast out of the bottomless pit a supernatural being, and as such, awes the people of this planet. He will now feel powerful enough to demand that universal worship be given to himself and Satan. This is graphically described here and elsewhere in Revelation chapter 13. Now, take that and digest it, but I thought that was interesting. At this point, we might pause to tabulate the various comparisons and contrasts that characterize Christ and the Antichrist that are scattered throughout the prophetic scriptures. Now, I've got this as a graphic. I can give it to you. I can email it to you if you want. 
But here are some comparisons between the Antichrist and Christ. Uh, of Christ, he is, was, and is to come in Revelation 1.18. Of the Antichrist, he was, is not, and shall ascend, Revelation 17.8. Christ had a three-year ministry or three-and-a-half-year ministry. The Antichrist will have a three-and-a-half-year monarchy. Uh, Christ is described as the coming one in Matthew 25.13, as well as the Antichrist is described as the coming one in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's the, Christ is the church's hope in Titus 2.13. The Antichrist is the world's hope in Revelation 13. Christ is the prince of princes in Daniel 8.25. Uh, and uh, the Antichrist is the coming prince in Daniel 9.26. Christ has a bride, the mystic New Jerusalem. And the Antichrist has a bride, the mystery Babylon. Uh, Christ was indwelt by God, John 3.34. Uh, the Antichrist was indwelt by Satan, uh, Revelation 13.2. Uh, Christ is a slain man risen, of course, the resurrection, Luke chapter 24. The Antichrist will be a slain man risen, Revelation chapter 13. Uh, with Christ, God was manifest in the flesh and worked many miracles. And with the Antichrist, Satan uh, will be manifest in the flesh and will work many miracles. Then, of course, there, there are some, some uh, contrasts as well. Christ was from above. The Antichrist is from below. Uh, Christ uh, came in the Father's name. The Antichrist comes in his own name. Christ humbled himself. The Antichrist exalts himself. Christ was despised. The Antichrist admired. Christ did the Father's will. The Antichrist his own will. Christ was exalted by God. The Antichrist will be cast down by God. Christ came to save. The Antichrist comes to destroy. Christ is the good shepherd. Uh, and the Antichrist is the false shepherd from Zechariah chapter number 11. Christ is the truth. The Antichrist is the lie. Christ is the holy one. The Antichrist is the lawless one. Christ is the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. And the Antichrist is the man of sin. Christ is the son of God. Uh, and the Antichrist is the son of perdition. Uh, with Christ, we have the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. With the Antichrist, we have the mystery of iniquity. Uh, Christ was the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. The Antichrist, the seed of the serpent. Christ is the lamb, uh, John 1.36. And the Antichrist is the beast. Christ loves and saves his bride, in Ephesians 5.25. The Antichrist hates and destroys his bride, in Revelation 17. Christ refused power from Satan. And, of course, the Antichrist will receive power from Satan. So we see the names of the deceiver. Then we see the nature of the deceiver. Notice first his aim in verse number four. It says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship. The word for opposeth here is the word antikamai. And it means literally to lie opposite or to be adverse or to be repugnant to. It signifies an adversary. The word is used of Satan in First Timothy chapter 1. It's used to depict the opposition of the Holy Spirit in the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Here Paul uses the word as a descriptive title. The Antichrist is the opponent. He is diametrically opposed to Christ and to all that he represents. His aim is to undermine all divine authority in human life and society on this earth. He also exalteth himself. The word is huperero. Uh, it, here it is a superlative and it means that the Antichrist will exalt himself exceedingly. This verse points us back to the description of the Antichrist in Daniel 11.36. Conceit and arrogance are behind the act of his exaltation, and the two thoughts are implied by this word. Uh, this same arrogance and pride marks all dictators. None, none of them, however, compare with this coming one whose pride and rebellion have been surpassed only by that of Satan himself. 
The aim of the Antichrist will be to reign supreme over all the affairs of men, and especially to subordinate all religion to himself. Satan knows the power and passion that religion can generate. He is the ultimate author of all false religion. Although people are sinful and the inner shrine of their spirit is vacated by the Holy Spirit, yet they must worship something or someone. Satan sees to it that multitudes worship him, often ignorantly and sometimes openly. He uses false religion to further his own ends. His ultimate aim is to rid the world of all religions that will not yield to the Antichrist and to create a new world religion centered in himself. As God found a perfect vehicle of expression in the Lord Jesus, so Satan will find a perfect vehicle of expression in the man of sin. He will, be pre- he will present him to the world as the Christ of all cults, as the Messiah of the Jews, as the Muhammad of Islam, the reincarnate Buddha, the Krishna of the Hindus, the incarnate God of this world. So he's going to eradicate all of the religions that won't come under his control. Then notice his claim. It says, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This verse, along with Revelation 13, 11 through 18, makes clear that the Jews are yet to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. From time to time, stories surface of radical factions in Israel who are determined to do just that. The Six-Day War put the Temple Mount firmly in the hands of the Jews. Opposition to rebuilding the temple on its ancient site centers in the ranks of liberal and agnostic Jews who resent and fear the power of the rabbis and the religious fanatics. Pragmatic Israelis fear the reaction from the Muslim world if any attempts were made to clear the site and begin work. The site is sacred to Islam as well. Still, the religious bloc in Israeli politics wields enormous power out of all proportion to its size. As to what will happen, probably no serious attempt will be made until the Antichrist has secured his power base in a revived Roman Empire comprising Europe and the West. He will then be strong enough militarily, economically, politically, and industrially to enforce his will. His seven-year treaty with Israel will give the Jews the backing that they need. Initially, the might of the Antichrist will overawe the Arabs. The presence of the Antichrist troops in Israel will call for caution. Any attack on Israel will be an attack on a revived and revitalized West, now united, ably led, and determined to defend its interests and further its ambitions. At this point, it seems likely that the Muslim world will appeal to Russia for aid. Despite the disillusion of the Soviet Union, Russia has not gone away, and Ezekiel has not changed his prophecy. The Russians will embrace their new allies, hoping to regain their position as a global superpower. The Russians will hastily put together a coalition of anti-Semitic nations. This coalition will precipitate the invasion of Israel that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, and that is described in Revelation chapter 9, verses 12 through 21. The moment the massive armies of Russia, Islam, and their allies cross into Israel, God will act. The demise of Russia and Islam will remove these two major obstacles from the Antichrist's path. His way will now lead directly to global power. The remaining nations of the earth will hasten to make their peace with him. With the whole world under his sway, the Antichrist will have no further use for Israel. He will seize the rebuilt temple and install his image in the holy place. Remember what it says in Matthew 24, uh, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place. He'll put his image there. He will then compel all men to receive his mark. Those who resist will be marked for extermination. Paul tells us that the Antichrist himself will sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The word for showing himself is the word apodenomai, and it it means having taken his seat in the temple and proclaimed his deity, the Antichrist will set himself forth as God. 
He will demonstrate that he is God. The word is in the continuous sense, indicating that this will be his continuing policy once he has seated himself in the Jewish temple. Everything will be directed against the true God. Satan has been worshipped ignorantly down through the centuries. Satan, after all, is the God of this world, but he craves open worship. The great role of the Antichrist in Satan's most secret plan for this world is to be to Satan what Jesus was to his father, the channel through whom worship can flow. So we see that this apocalypse is sovereignly determined. But then we note that it's sovereignly uh, delayed. Notice what the Thessalonians had forgotten. Paul says, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. At this point, Paul inserts a personal note to the Thessalonians. He reminds them of what they had forgotten. Evidently, Paul covered a great deal of ground with his converts. Doubtly, Paul grounded them in the apostles' doctrine. He gave them crash courses in theology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, angelology, and even eschatology. He considered a good grounding in Bible prophecy as a good, as good a preparation for godly victorious living as anything else. And he reminds them that he was not telling them anything new. He, he mentions what they had forgotten, but then he mentions who they had forgotten. And this sort of opens a new discourse or a new angle uh, in our text. He says, and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. He reminds them also of whom they had forgotten. The word used here is the word kateko. It means to hold fast actively and deliberately when it says withhold it. It means to restrain. Uh, you know what is restraining him, the Antichrist, Paul says. They knew because they had already been told. He adds the reason why the restraint is enforced, that he might be revealed in his time. That is, after the rapture of the church. Uh, the neuter is used here, the restraining thing. In the next verse, Paul makes clear that the one who is holding back the final development of lawlessness on this planet is the Holy Spirit. Now he deals with not only the man of sin, but the mystery of sin. He says in verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The word mystery here speaks of the working of a diabolical activity. A mystery in Scripture is a truth that was once hidden but now is revealed. We think of a mystery as something that is difficult to know and has to be sort of ferreted out or, or deduced or something like that. We think of a Sherlock Holmes mystery or some kind of mystery television show. But that's not what mystery means in the Bible. Mystery in the Bible means something you could not have known because it was not yet revealed, but now it has been disclosed uh, and has been revealed to us. About a dozen such mysteries are mentioned in the New Testament. The mystery of iniquity is the secret working of lawlessness. From the beginning, it has been a goal of Satan and his wicked spirits in the heavenlies to overthrow God's purposes regarding this planet. The word for work here means to work actively. In other words, Satan is tireless in his efforts to bring his plans to fruition. But he is up against a major obstacle. Before I move on, let me just say, it's what we see around us today. Uh, sometimes you sit there and probably think, boy, it seems like the whole world is just conspiring for everything to be wicked. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, as Satan continues to tighten his grip on this world, we see more boldly and more evidently uh, that things are not just, just happenstance, just casually, coincidentally moving in a direction. No, there is a concerted effort in this world. It has always been that way, but now it is becoming apparent. So we see the working of a diabolical activity. Then we see the working of a divine adversary. He says, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. There is one who hinders 
and will hinder. He led us and will let until he be taken out of the way. The word for let us here is that same word kateko that was given to us as withholdeth in verse 6. The only one who can restrain Satan and his angels is the Holy Spirit. The instrument of that restraint ever since Pentecost has been the church, the mystical body of Christ into which believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can happen prophetically until a change occurs. And the mighty power that is now restraining Satan and his minions is removed. As long as the Holy Spirit and the church remain on earth, the day of grace continues. As long as it is a day of grace, God cannot pour out his judgments and his wrath upon this planet. The flood could not come until Noah was safely in the ark. Fire could not fall from heaven until Lot was safely out of Sodom. And judgment cannot come on this earth until the church is removed from this planet. When I say judgment, I don't believe... I don't mean that God does not deal in judgment with nations, but I mean the judgment described here, uh, the wrath of God that will be poured out. The church must be removed for this to take place. The removal of the church will mean that God's method of doing things will revert to the Old Testament era. The Holy Spirit will cease baptizing people into the mystical body of Christ. He will no longer hinder the rapid acceleration of wickedness in the world. The way will be clear for Satan and the Antichrist to take over the world. People will be left to learn for themselves what the world will be like once unrestrained wickedness is given full reign. The book of Revelation gives us the dread details. Although the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain the development of the mystery of iniquity, does not mean that it will be impossible for people to be saved or that God will no longer have those on earth to bear witness to Him. On the contrary, millions of people will be saved after the rapture. The two witnesses and the 144,000 that are mentioned in Revelation will reap a vast harvest. These saved people will not, of course, be in the church, but they will be in the kingdom. Moreover, they will pay a high price for their confession of faith. Countless millions of people will be martyred by the Antichrist. Then we see not only the present conflict, but we see the prophetic climax in verses 8 through 10. Now the Holy Spirit moves the story on to the end and answers three questions concerning the coming man of sin. These questions are when, who, and why. Notice the when in verse number 8. It says, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Uh, he tells us that the Antichrist will be revealed after the rapture of the church. He will have his apocalypse, his unveiling, his revealing to the world. Throughout the history of the church age, it has been the method of the Holy Spirit to allow evil to rise to a certain level and then send a church-born spiritual revival to hurl it back. How people underestimate the church. They see it weak, ineffective, torn asunder, uh, riddled by cultic abnormalities, shaken by scandals, espousing wrong causes, and often represented before the world by unsaved or weak and carnal men. What they see is not really the church, but Christendom. The very gates of hell cannot prevail against the true church. Its foes in the heavenlies understand that far better than we do. The false, the fanatical, and the faulty in the church do not deceive them. They see the church as it really is. As one writer said, spread throughout all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. They fear it as the body of Christ and for its ability to be in touch with God's throne. Then will come the rapture. The church will be gone. The restrainer no longer operating through the church, the mystical body of Christ, to arrest corruption and decay. The way will be cleared at last for the man of sin. Satan will be swift to seize the initiative once the obstacle that he has fought and feared so long is mysteriously and supernaturally removed. 
As for the revivals that will follow the rapture, he'll know how to deal with those. Individual believers not baptized into a mystical body without a support system around them will be easy prey. He'll simply stamp them out. He tried that with the church before, but it didn't work. The church always came back with fresh revivals. But with the church gone, he will be able at last to reveal his man. Here he is called that wicked. The word means the lawless one. He will be the last in a long line of rebels. Nimrod, whose name means the rebel in Genesis 10, was one such satanic type of the Antichrist. In the early dawn of time, right after the flood, Nimrod set out to build a world empire. There was to be a one-world society, as symbolized by a common language, a one-world sovereignty, as symbolized by the city he built, and a one-world sanctuary, as as, uh, symbolized by the Tower of Babel. The Antichrist then will be revealed, but not until after the rapture of the church. The Holy Spirit hastens to record his certain doom, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The word for consume is the word analisco. It means to destroy. Uh, Thus James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume, same word, certain Samaritan villagers who would not receive Christ because he was evidently going to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9. Destruction of the Antichrist will be the sole prerogative of the true Christ the very one that he has vilified for so long and whose people he has so terribly persecuted. Nor will it take much. He will destroy him with the spirit of his mouth. Evidently, all that the Lord has to do is speak. Not only will the Antichrist be consumed, but also he will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. The word destroy here means to render inactive and to spoil, to make useless or to avoid, or to make void or to abolish. The word is used to show the barren, how the barren fig tree was useless uh, in the space that it occupied in Luke chapter 13. The word is used to show how complete will be the Lord's triumph over death in 1 Corinthians 15:26, when it says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. One glimpse of the brightness of his coming and all of the boasted schemes of the Antichrist will be brought to nothing. As a bright light shining into some junk-piled attic reveals all of the dust, dirt, cobwebs, and broken, useless odds and ends and crawling creatures too, so the brightness of the Lord's coming will reveal the tarnish, the tinsel, the grotesqueness, the tawdry shoddiness, the uselessness, the shame, the crime, and guilt, and cheapness of Satan's imitation Christ and his phony kingdom. So we see the when, but then he describes the who. Verse number 9, he says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. He goes on in verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. The apostle has told us when, now he tells us who it is. Uh, God is going to give Satan unhindered license to behave as he wants and will give him enough rope to hang himself. He's going to give the sinner an unhindered opportunity to believe as he wants and will give him enough rope to hang himself, to damn himself as well. Satan will certainly rise to the bait. His final and consummate masterpiece of deception will be the unveiling of the man of sin. First, he is going to have a coming, a parousia. His presence will be revealed to his own, a godless world that has long since rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. His coming will be after the working of Satan. The word for working is the word energia, the same word used to describe the energetic working of the mystery of iniquity in verse number 7. Satan's activity will become feverish after he is thrown out of the heavenlies and his dark machinations are restricted to this planet. It will now dawn upon him that his time is short. He will bring his man on stage. The seal judgments will reduce the world to such chaos that the people will be eager to find a man to bring order and sanity back to the world. 
Satan will clothe his man with power. The word for power here is the word dunamis. It means untrammeled and unequaled power. Satan once exercised this kind of power. Jesus authorized his disciples, however, to confront him. Behold, he said, I give you power, exousia, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, dunamis, of the enemy in Luke chapter 10. This was a foretaste of things to come. After the Lord's resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, this was changed. It was inverted. Dunamis, that explosive power, was vested in the church, the body of Christ, the body through which Satan is currently held back. In Acts 1.8, the Lord said, You shall receive power, dunamis, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. In Romans 1.16, the Lord uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, the dunamis of God, unto salvation to everyone that believes it. During this age, however, Satan's power is described not by the word dunamis, not that explosive power, but by the word exousia, the same one that was used of the disciples earlier. It means authority or power subject to another power. Thus, Satan is called the prince of the power, the exousia of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. We are delivered from the power, the exousia of darkness, Colossians 1, 13, and are translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. Paul's testimony was that God had commissioned him to preach to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power, the exousia, of Satan in Acts 26.18. Since Pentecost, Satan has been under restraint. The Antichrist cannot be revealed until the restraining power of the church is removed. It's evident from 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that Satan not only regains his lost power, dunamis, but also bestows the same kind of power on his protege, the Antichrist. He will bring the whole world under his sway for a limited time. The Antichrist's personal charisma and political cunning will be enhanced by his power to work miracles. He will dazzle the world with signs and lying wonders. The word for signs is the common word that John used to describe the miracles wrought by the Lord Jesus. It occurs 48 times in the gospel. John uses it seven times. The word points especially to the significance of the wonder that is wrought. It is intended to emphasize the reason, the object, and the purpose of the sign. The word for lying here in the text is the word pseudos. We use it uh, shortened in the word pseudo when we talk about things today. And it's the usual word for falsehood. The signs of the Antichrist are designed to deceive, in other words. In this, the Antichrist betrays his family likeness. You remember Jesus said to the Jewish authorities in John 8, 44, year of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, a pseudos, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. The purpose of these lying signs is to convince the world that the Antichrist claim to be God is true. The word for wonders is the word terrace, and it refers to something marvelous, something that produces a marked effect on those who witness the miracle. The word is used of Christ's miracles underlines the excitement that was produced. The signs that the Antichrist will perform will be spectacular and will convince the world the era will be an era of miracles. Then he tells us why. Look at uh, the rest of the verse. Because they receive not the love of the truth, verse 10, that they might be saved. Paul now tells us why God will permit Satan this one brief hour of triumph. And he says it's because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Millions of people will be saved after the rapture of the church, but no one who has received adequate presentation of the gospel in this age and rejected it will be saved in that judgment age. 
All of those people who have been brought up under the sound of the gospel, all who have heard it and understood it but who had no love for it, will put themselves beyond the hope of salvation once the rapture occurs. They will be left behind for judgment. Thus it was in the days of Lot and Noah. Thus it will be again uh, as well. You know, uh, the Lord Jesus spoke about that when he said that it would be as it was in the days of Lot, as it was in the days of Noah. And the emphasis of that passage does not even necessarily lay on on the depravity of society, but rather the fact that they were going along witlessly uh, with no regard to, to truth. And then the day came that the door was shut, the day that, came that the, the fire and brimstone fell, and then it was too late. Likewise, it will be for the tribulation period. So he mentions the present conflict and the prophetic climax. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, he presents the practical conclusion. He says in verse 11, And for this cause... God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. So he mentions two things here. First, he mentions a delusion that will take place. For those left behind, there will be only delusion. And what a startling revelation. It's a sobering fact that men are free to choose their own way, and God is free to confirm them in their delusions. Just before he put down his pen, the great prophet Isaiah issued this warning from God. I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. In Isaiah 66, 4. Before he rained down hell from heaven upon the wicked people of Sodom, God first smote the vile practitioners of perversion with blindness. Before the flood came to cleanse a world given over to evil, he confirmed them in Noah's day in their willful ignorance of himself. Paul warns that a time comes in the personal history of an unbeliever when God gives him up in Romans chapter 1. God warns in Genesis 6-3, My spirit shall not always strive with man. There's a little poem that sort of describes it. It says, There's a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary line between God's mercy and His wrath. Belshazzar crossed that forbidden frontier. King Saul passed it. As well, And when he found that he could no longer get an answer, when he knocked on the door of heaven, he knocked on the door of hell. And to his surprise, it was open, and he was pushed through it to his doom. Balaam crossed that unseen line. The epistle to the Hebrews warns against crossing that line. God will send to those who have heard and rejected the gospel strong delusion. The word for delusion here means literally to wander or to forsake the right path. It refers to a deviation in both doctrine and morals. Let me make this passing statement and then we'll move on. We are seeing in our world today how strong delusion can be. Uh, we're not even living in a time when God is supernaturally giving men over for de- to delusion, but we are living in a day of mass hysteria and delusion nonetheless. It's not a surprise. When you turn on the news, when you look around at society, it's not a surprise to see that the world could be taken in by a snare and a lie. Then he speaks of the damnation that will result. He says that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Listen carefully, I'll make these statements and we'll close. For those who thus reap the due reward of their deeds, there will be damnation. It is inevitable in any sphere of life that those who refuse truth embrace error. A person may choose to believe that two multiplied by two is ten, but all he has done is embrace a lie. A person may choose to disbelieve a medical truth that he has cancer or something of that sort, But all he does is hasten uh, his condition. He has embraced a deception. What is true of a scientific truth is true also of a spiritual truth. 
To turn from it is to embrace some form of error. Here Paul says that in the coming day, having rejected the truth, whether in this gospel age or the truth proclaimed by the two witnesses or the 144,000 during the judgment age, will be to embrace a lie. Literally, the lie for those in the tribulation. The lie of the Antichrist that he is God. How terrible. It is not unbelief, but faith that will be the snare of the last days. God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. They will embrace it with zeal and a fanaticism equal to or exceeding that with which people embrace humanism, communism, or Islam. And I found this, that fanaticism in erroneous doctrine creates for the worst in the human condition. Uh, the only, listen, uh, only fanaticism in Bible Christianity produces a moral and virtuous life. In any false doctrine, in any false religion, fanaticism always degrades the human character and behavior. The amazing receptivity of the soul's soil for this coming lie has two causes. One of them is negative and one of them is positive. The negative reason is that they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. It's not merely that they receive not the truth. God is patient with our blindness and unbelief and his grace can triumph at last in a heart that has rejected it for years. However blind and dark people are, God still has his witness in their soul. Conscience remains with its love of the truth. But conscience can be destroyed and distorted can be distorted and eventually seared. How great is the peril of that person who refuses to love what he knows to be right? What folly to trifle with the convicting of the Holy Spirit, to play games with the Scriptures, to find excuses for unbelief. So there's a negative reason. Then, secondly, there's a positive reason. It says they had pleasure in unrighteousness. The root cause of all rejection of God, the Bible, and the Gospel does not lie in any defect of the intellect or in the reason of the mind. These are excuses for unbelief, but they are not reasons for unbelief. The ultimate reason people reject the truth is not mental, but moral. It lies in man's love of sin and divine prince and his pleasure in unrighteousness. God shall sin, uh, the text says. Terrible words indeed. A divine principle is at work here. Goodness practice develops into greater goodness. Even so, wickedness does not stand still. It matures. As someone once said, one leper spot makes it last a full-blown leper. God made the laws which thus operate in the moral world, as he made the laws that govern in the material world. After the rapture, God will remove all moral and spiritual restraints, and man's momentum toward evil will finally be free.